parentheses, chapter 11, verses um, 31 through chapter 11, verse 1, all being from the ESV. So whether you eat or drink, do whatever you do, do all in the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to the Greeks or to all of the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do not, do not, not sinking in my own advantage, but, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am Christ. Thanks, Brooks and Fletch. Good job. By the way, I think my name is somewhere in the church bulletin. Um, so it's a little strange that I had probably 40 people on the way out this morning refer to me as either man or brother. I just thought it was weird. <clears throat> hey, brother. <laughs> I love it. And for those of you that were not here this morning, that makes absolutely no sense. <clears throat> I remember vividly having a, a very serious spiritual conversation with a young man who was about to embark on life. In just a couple of weeks, he was going to be graduating college, and so he wanted to meet with me and talk about some, some things that were going on in his life, and I was happy to do that. I can remember during the course of the conversation asking him, so where do you see your life going from this point? What is it that you want to accomplish with your life? And his reply was, well, I've never really felt it important for me to decide that. I just go with the flow and I'll let it happen. That's one way to approach life. But I'm suggesting that that is not the best way in order to be able to achieve the greatest spiritual fruit in our lives. It may be a cliche, but nevertheless it's true, and that's why it's been around for quite a number of years, that if you aim at nothing, you will hit it with remarkable accuracy every time. We accomplish the most when we set some specific goals, when we have specific plans, and we make those plans with, a, with the intention in mind that I am going to reach them. It's not just some kind of New Year's resolution that we don't take all that seriously, and without, by the end or middle of January, we've forgotten all about it. I know that's a biblical theme because the Bible says that God made plans. Let us make man in, in, in our image. That's a plan. That's a goal. On one occasion, the Bible simply says, makes this, this statement, and Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. That just means that that was his goal. That was his plan. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to allow anything to deter me until I arrive in Jerusalem. I think those principles are true in terms of our need and, and I hope our desire to grow spiritually. We can't expect to have any significant impact on the world or even on our own communities if we choose to go through life like a toy train that's on a track going around and around in circles but going nowhere. I remember hearing Batchelor Baxter in a lecture one time say that a lot of people are like the leaves on a tree stirred by the wind. They are in constant motion but they're going nowhere. And another danger is that we can make goals, but we make them so broad that they cease to be of any real value. So we're not talking tonight about choosing the right direction in terms of daydreaming. We're talking about setting some specific goals, making specific plans in our lives individually and also collectively as a congregation of God's people. You've heard in one 
version of the story or the other. I know I've told it about a salesman who was passing through a community, a rural community, and he noticed several targets that had been painted on the side of a barn. And he was amazed that with every one of those targets that had, large targets, by the way, that had been painted on the side of that barn, there was an arrow sticking right in the middle. I mean, the center point on every one of those targets. Well, he went into a general store. Of course, there were some old men, you know, the Spit and Whittle Club that was meeting there and sitting around, jawing. And he said, somebody in this community must be quite a marksman. And he, he told them about t- seeing the, ar- the arrows that he had seen in the center of all those targets. And an old gentleman answered, he said, I don't know about that, but we do have a fellow who likes to shoot arrows into the side of a barn and then he'll paint the targets around them. Anybody can do that. So we're not talking about just winding up somewhere serendipitously and saying, that's where I plan to be all alone. It's not difficult to hit targets as broad as the side of a barn. But what do we accomplish unless those, those, those targets, those goals are specific and they are meaningful to our lives? And so let's think about that tonight for a few minutes in terms of the biblical nature of that. And I hope that we will see that Paul and others, by, by inspiration, talked about and, and addressed that to the early church and also, of course, to us as we study those scriptures some 2,000 years later. In our text, starting with verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I didn't ask Brooks to read all of it because he would still be up here, bless his heart, but uh, all the way through chapter 11, verse 1, he read the preponderance of it. Paul wrote about the freedom that we have in the Lord. You might want to open your Bible and, and kind of scan through those verses. We're going to read some of them. But he set the stage for some guiding principles, I think, with this statement. If you look in verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but, not, but all things do not edify. Or as one version says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Paul is reminding us that God has given to each of us the freedom of choice, but not every direction that is open to us is either good or beneficial. It might be allowable. We might even argue for its biblical nature. That is, God allows us to be able to do that. But even with that in mind, Paul is saying there are certain things that are permissible that God would allow, but we still have to ask ourselves the question, if you pursue that direction, is that going to be beneficial to yourself and to others? That's a legitimate question. And he goes on from there to suggest some some considerations for exercising that that freedom of choice that God has given to every one of us. I, I think there's some principles here that I want to draw from this text that will give us some guidelines for, for setting goals that will enable us to reach our greatest influence for Christ. So let's begin at the beginning place. The first principle for goal setting, Paul says, is that Christians should set constructive goals. Everybody here knows what the Guinness Book of World Records is because the title of it <laughs> explains the content. It's just a book, and all it is is about people who have set records. These have been verified by, I suppose, a committee of people who work for Guinness. And and so, anyway, that's what that book is about. And every year there's a new one that comes out. It's full of information about people who are setting records. But, you know, as as you glance through, and I've done that, I've paged through that book from time to time and noticed that some of those accomplishments contribute absolutely nothing to the good of anyone. By that I mean what difference does it make if I ate a particular kind of food and I ate more of it than anybody else has ever done in the history of the world. Whether it's hot dogs or tacos, it doesn't matter. 
What difference does it make if I've set up and knocked over more dominoes than anybody else in the history of humanity? What does it make any difference if a particular kind of of, of goal has been reached that has absolutely no benefit to those around us. God calls us to set goals that will enable us, watch this carefully, to make a positive difference in the world. So that's what we're talking about tonight. We're not just talking about doing something that's spectacular in the sense of getting our name written up in a book. I'm talking about making a real contribution to the society, to the community, and to the world in which we live. I heard about a teenage boy with some interest in mechanical things, and he, he rebuilt a small engine in his, in his garage. He invested a lot of hours of labor in that project, and sure enough, the motor ran like a top. And so the first thing he wanted to do was to bring one of his friends in to see that motor. He was understandably proud of his work. And so we invited the friend into the, into the garage to examine his handiwork. He started the engine, and then he said it excitedly. He said, isn't that a beautiful sound? I mean, she purrs like a kitten. Well, his more pragmatic friend replied, well, yes, but let me ask you, what does it do? I mean, it doesn't turn any wheels. It doesn't generate any electricity. It just sits there and uses gas. I think in a similar way, God did not intend for our lives to be like that motor. Life is more than just sitting there and using up energy or taking up space. Every life has the potential to be fruitful and to be beneficial to oneself and to others. And I think that's what we all understand that God calls us to. Not only are some goals not constructive, but you and I know that sometimes there are goals that people can have that can be downright destructive. Jesus wants to ask in Mark 8 verse 36, what good is it if a man would gain the whole world and lose his own soul? We're talking about the ultimate. There he is. He's gained the whole world. Maybe he's the richest man who ever lived. Maybe he's the most powerful man. Maybe there's more people in, in a particular kingdom that are willing to bow down to whatever it is. He's gained the whole world. And yet if he has bartered his own soul for that, he is a loser in that deal. That was Jesus' assessment. And he wanted his disciples and us to understand that. He, he offered a simple warning in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew six nineteen and following. He said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where rust and moth uh, uh, corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. Rather, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt, where thieves do not break through and steal. For verse 21, he says, for where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. He's saying these are not things that you ought to be spending your life doing. These are not goals that you ought to have. These are not plans that you ought to be making in your life that have to do only with this life. If you do that, then when eternity comes, when you are thrust into the next life, then you're going to be very, very sorry that you've made that tragic decision. We do well to evaluate our goals then on a regular basis, to make sure that they are in keeping, that they are constructive, but most importantly, that they are in keeping with the will of God. We might ask ourselves questions like, even if I accomplish whatever present goals that I have, will it make a positive difference to anyone? I think another appropriate question would be, are my present goals, are my present goals even distracting me from what's really most important in life? And I know that that sometimes happens. I talk to people on a pretty regular basis who will acknowledge that it might be some recreational interest. It might be some hobby. It might be that they're a workaholic. But whatever it is, their goals are keeping them 
from focusing on what ought to be the number one priority in their life. It's actually distracting them from what's most important. So constructive goals are necessary for growing the fruit of righteousness in our lives. Here's a second principle that I think we can glean from Paul's statements. And that is goals need to be set that will, in fact, be a blessing to others. That principle is just so important. Christians ought to set goals that enable them to bless the lives of others. Here's what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. And that's a pretty general statement. But I believe it's one that can easily hit us right between the eyes. Are we doing that? Are we living with that kind of spiritual philosophy? I want to make sure that when I make decisions on a day-to-day basis, I'm not only, it's not only helping to point me in the right direction in terms of God's will for my life, but also I need to ask this, is it helping anybody else? If it's just me or if it's just me centered, then that's a very selfish way to live. So that's why Paul says we've got to make sure that our goals, our plans for life, our our direction in life, the choices that we make on a day-to-day basis are going to be a blessing to the people around us. He continues to emphasize that principle, if you'll notice, in verses 25 through 30, all the way through chapter 11 in verse 1. His conclusion is, by the way, I really need to set the stage for it. He's talking about the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. He's using that as an example of making sure that what you're doing is, is, is spiritually a blessing to others and not going to hinder them and, and, and distract them and deter them in any way from them going to heaven. And so he uses that, that example that was very common to the early church. They would have immediately keyed into what Paul was talking about. So eating that meat, he says, that has been sacrificed to idols, that is not inherently sinful. In fact, he makes the case that idols are constructed for a God that does not exist. So if you offer meat to a non-existent God, that meat is not somehow spiritually tainted. That seems to be the underlying argument that Paul is making. But then he goes on very quickly to add that activity, that is eating meat sacrificed to idols, can be sinful if your action causes someone else to stumble. Someone perhaps in the first century world would see you eating that meat and think, oh, Randy has gone back into idolatry. And use that as a license for them doing so. So if it should be provide some kind of concession on their part, if it hinders them spiritually and causes them to fall, Paul said, don't do it. Even if you have the right spiritually, even if, if there's nothing wrong with the meat itself. And so he makes it crystal clear that our spiritual freedom sometimes needs to, needs to be sacrificed for the good of others. And then he wrote verse 33. Take a look at that. Try to please everybody in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good but the good of many, so that they may be saved. I think that last phrase really indicates what ought to to motivate us and drive us in making the decisions and going in a particular direction every day of our life. I want to do everything that I can, and I want to stay away from doing anything that will deter somebody else from going to heaven. Isn't that an admirable motive? And Paul says, keep that in mind. When you make your choices on a daily basis, life is more productive. If we approach it with sensitivity toward the needs of others, whether it's our our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, and it might even be strangers. People who are growing the fruit of righteousness are those who are honestly praying, Lord, may I live for others so that I may 
live like you. Principle number three. Christians should set goals with potential for glorifying God. So I want to make sure it's pointing me in the right direction. I want to make sure that I'm not hurting anyone else. I want to encourage other people by the choices that I make in my life. But thirdly, I want to make sure that I'm making choices on a daily basis that will glorify and honor the name of God. Paul's words in verse 31, I believe it is, verse 31, remind us of our greatest mission. So whether you eat or drink, now remember the analogy, the illustration that's just used about eating and drinking and whether or not that's permissible. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Wouldn't that be a great objective for every child of God in our day? If we could pillow our heads every night and say, everything I did today, I did to the glory of God. Now, I'm not suggesting that we, you know, brag on ourselves or look in a mirror and, and tell ourselves all the good things we've done that day. But I'm just saying, if you can pray that prayer, God, I have done everything today to the best of my knowledge to your glory. That's exactly what Paul is saying. That's where, that's where we need to set the bar in our spiritual lives. It's appropriate to ask ourselves, can I do this and can I honor God in doing this? In fact, let me suggest three questions that need to be asked when we are attempting to determine the answer to that question. Can I do this particular activity in a way that will honor God? Question number one, is the action I'm considering consistent with the commandments and the principles of God's word? If God anywhere in his word says a Christian ought not to be doing this, and by the way, there are some passages that address that very subject. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, uh, Colossians chapter 3, 5 and following, all, all of those passages there's a list there that says you can either do these things or you can go to heaven, but you can't do both. You've got to stay away from these things. Thou shalt not are, are replete in Scripture, but every one of them, Vance Havner says, are there to remind us that we are to do ourselves no harm. Every time God has said, don't do this, it is always for our best interest. I hope we can hammer that into our consciousness. God is not trying to inhibit our happiness. He is trying to extend it. And so all of those passages need to be taken seriously when God says, stay away from, don't do that. Don't, th those are the things that characterize your lifestyle before you became a Christian. But now that you're a child of God, you need to stay as far away from those activities as you possibly can. So that's the first question. Does God's word speak to this issue? If it does and says, don't do this, then that settles it. For a sincere child of God, we, we acknowledge God's greatness only when we obey him. And I hope you're hearing me here. Our obedience is our acknowledgement that we believe God to be who he says he is and capable of doing what the scriptures say he is capable of doing. Here's a second question. And that is, does the action that I'm considering cast God in a positive light? I know of a fellow, well... I assume he's still alive. I knew him back when I was in college. And he went into uh, the police service. He was an uh, Indiana State policeman. And he said that he was regularly reminded by his superiors that when you wear that uniform, you're representing the state police. And he said that they would tell them regularly that you are, it's your responsibility to behave in a fashion that will enhance the reputation of, of state law enforcement. So when you wear that uniform, it ought to mean something. And you need to conduct yourself accordingly. And I, I'm just asking us to take that simple illustration and translate that into the spiritual realm. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 presents, I think, a huge challenge to Christians. 
We are therefore, Paul says, Christ's ambassadors. The key word in that passage is the word ambassadors. And so unless we know what that means, one sent on behalf of another, one who represents and may even speak for someone else, we know what ambassadors are in the political realm, Paul said, I want you to know that spiritually you are all, we are all Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I am an ambassador for Jesus Christ and so are you. And that can be intimidating. Because that is a challenging charge that that Paul has given every one of us. As ambassadors, Paul said, I want you to know, you represent our Lord. And as his representatives, we're responsible to behave in a way that will affirm the credibility of the one that we are representing. Here's a third question. And that is, does the action that I'm considering promote God's cause? As servants and children of the Lord, we're obligated to evaluate our, our plans and our goals in, in light of the potential of those goals to help build up God's people here on earth. God is, is glorified only to the degree that his purpose is exalted. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 3 verse 10 anyway. We are his agents. We're commissioned to carry out his purposes and not our own. And that ought to be our major consideration as we set goals to glorify God. Now maybe the exhortation of the psalmist ought to be kept before us when we began considering the goals that we set in our lives, whether we're doing that at the end of the year, or the beginning of the year, or somewhere in between, it doesn't really matter. I love this passage, by the way. It's Psalm 29, 1 and 2. And if you don't have that underscored or highlighted in your Bible, I would recommend that you do so. Here's what the psalmist said Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Now, that's not just talking about in our worship, and that's not just talking about what we verbalize. The psalmist is saying the way you live is going to ascribe to the Lord the glory and the honor that is due him or it will not. One of those two things. And God's people need to make sure that when we make choices every day that the choices that we make ascribe to the Lord the honor that is due his name. Now let's go back to our main list and I'm almost through. Number four, Christians should set goals that are consistent with the example of of Christ. What would Jesus do is a valid question that each of us should ask. And if you look in 1 Corinthians in our text at the very end, and, and that's why we had to kind of bump it over into the next chapter, chapter 11 and verse 1 is where Paul said, Be ye therefore imitators or followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Charles Sheldon's classic novel, In His Steps, is, as most of you know, is about a group of people who dared to ask the question. How would that translate into practical life? If with every decision that we make, with every action that we take on a day-to-day basis, before we take that action, we ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? And so I'm just challenging each of us to to be cognizant of that reality and that when we make choices... Whether we say it out loud or not really doesn't matter. But would would Jesus do this? Is this something that Jesus would approve in our lives? And that's a question that anyone who's striving for faithfulness is, is going to be willing to ask. 
You know, most of the hard decisions of life can be made by following Jesus' example. And, and let me just point out a couple of passages that make that clear because remember, he made no mistakes. Hebrews 4.15 makes that clear. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5.21, God made him who had no sin. Jesus never made a mistake. So if there's anybody whose example we need to follow, it's the Lord's. And then Peter states in 1 Peter 2.21, you can't get any more practical than this. For this for this you were called, because Christ also, also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. So to say, as Paul did, that it's safe to follow us because our actions are an example of what Christ would do, that's a real bold statement. But Paul could, Paul could walk the talk. I mean, Paul was able to sit, and, and by the way, you recognize the qualifier in that passage. Paul didn't say, everybody needs to do exactly what I'm doing. But he said, you follow me, you imitate me as I imitate Christ, only to the degree that my life is reflecting what Christ would do and teach and say, then you can follow me in that regard. So I think we could all say that, but it's still a very bold statement and a worthy ambition for every one of us is to live so that that statement could be truthfully made of us. Now, let's, let's mention the last principle from Paul's statement here to the Corinthians. We need to set goals that are consistent with our faith. Said another way, we serve a powerful God, and our goals ought to reflect that. We, all, we don't need to be making little bitty plans. As one brother has said many, many years ago, and it stuck with me for all these, literally for these decades, we've been too little, too late, too long because of what we're talking about tonight. We're not making big plans in our lives individually and collectively as churches. We're not thinking big enough. We serve the sovereign God of the universe who spoke this universe into existence in a divine fiat, who continues to sustain and hold this universe together by his power, who allowed his son to die on the cross so that every one of us could someday live with God in eternity. And every time we, we gather around this table on a Sunday morning and we observe the Lord's Supper, we need to do exactly what the Lord said we need to be doing. We need to be remembering what he's done for us. But we also need to be remembering the power of that God and how that he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we ought to live with eternal gratitude for that fact. God is a sovereign and a powerful God. I remember years ago seeing a TV commercial that ran pretty regularly, and, and I'm talking about years ago. I think it was maybe a Lipton soup commercial. But I, I remember the woman who had apparently been outside running in the rain coming in where her husband had a hot bowl of soup waiting for her. And, and uh, the husband says lovingly to her, I'm surprised that you're worried about finishing. She was preparing for an upcoming marathon. He said, I'm surprised that you're worried about finishing. And she said with a smile, finishing I'm worried about winning. Well, that's a good attitude to have. We, we need to make sure that our sights are, are consistent with what Christ would have us to be doing. Her attitude, I think, is, is one that every one of us ought to adopt. We accomplish the most when we set our goals realistically, but we also set them challengingly. If they do not excite us, if they don't get the adrenaline going, if they don't move our hearts and our souls, then they aren't lofty enough. But if there's no possible way that we could ever reach that goal, then it's un an unrealistic goal. I think we understand the balance there. How often are we so confident of, of, of finishing the race that we never really ask ourselves, am I winning the race that I'm running for the Lord every day of my life? There's never any substitute for our best. Please always remember that. 
But how does one attain that kind of visionary faith? I want to give you a Bible example, then we're through. There's an account in the book of Nehemiah back in the Old Testament that ought to give us a hint that will help us with, with the decisions and the size of our goals on a daily basis. Nehemiah, as you may remember, asked a passing traveler about how conditions were in Jerusalem. And what he heard was not good news. The people remaining in Jerusalem after the exile were in deep trouble. The walls were down. The gates had been burned. Discouragement and low morale among the Israelite people was rampant. And Nehemiah records this, and this is chapter 1 of Nehemiah, only four verses into the book. When I heard these things, Nehemiah said, I sat down and wept. Now there's the emotional impact of seeing that blessed city in ruins and, and, and the walls down. And he said, I sat down and wept. And for days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Later we find Nehemiah in Jerusalem. He had gone to check out the situation and to see for himself if what he heard from that traveler was indeed true. What was it that God had put in his heart? You remember Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 12, he reports, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. So at this point, his goal, his objective is very personal and it's confidential. I had not told anybody. Well, what was it that God put in his heart? God gave Nehemiah, of course, the job of rebuilding the walls of the city. But I think it's important for every one of us to note that Nehemiah had that goal only after he heard about the need. Our goals need to be practical and pragmatic. They need to be attached to something that is a real need. Otherwise, we'll just be like the person that knocks over the dominoes in Guinness's Book of World Record. That'll be interesting, but not particularly helpful to anyone. Nehemiah's goal was attached to a need. And it became a burning compulsion, a magnificent obsession in his life. And then he had faith in God and a compassion for his people that motivated him to, as we talked about this morning, to stop praying and fasting and go to work. And that's what he did. You know, a close relationship with God develops only when we spend time with God in prayer and in study and in worship. I'm suggesting tonight that a strong devotional life do you have one? Are you spending time in the Word? Are you a prayer warrior? Are you someone who looks forward to worship? Or do you think, I've got to go to work? All of those things are necessary to the kind of spiritual vision that Nehemiah had. So in this series on making right choices, we need to make sure that every choice that we make on a daily basis, especially as we, we sit down and maybe even put it on paper, that here's what I want to accomplish this year with my life. This is the direction that I want to go in. Here are the educational goals that I have. Here are the things that I need to be doing in my job. But most importantly, here are the things that I need to be doing in kingdom service. And here are the things I need to be doing with and for my family. Those ought to be the top two items on that list, shouldn't they? I remember I was eight or nine when I got my first BB gun. By the way, I've told you that story, haven't I? that I got a slingshot. That was my first weapon, a slingshot. My mom said, you'll not be happy till you put an eye out with that. Then I got a bow and arrow, opened up the package. My mom said, you'll not be happy till you put an eye out with that. I got a BB gun. She said, you'll not be happy till you put an eye out with that. And I'm happy to report I never put anyone's eye out 
But as a concession to my mother's wisdom, I've never really been happy either. (laughs) My first BB gun at eight or nine took a little practice, and I was hitting targets close up with pretty good regularity. But distant targets were another matter entirely. An older cousin was with me at the time and attempting to help me to hit that distant target. He explained that the air pressure produced by the rifle could carry, you know, the BB on a straight line for only a limited distance. Okay, well, this is a cousin. He didn't say exactly those words. He said, you got to aim higher, you dummy, something to that effect. That if I hoped to hit the target, I just needed to, to raise the barrel of the rifle and aim higher. And I, I raised my air rifle, carefully took aim, almost a foot above the target. And, and then I was very happy as I hit the target almost dead center. I've discovered that advice to work in any area of life. And that is quality spiritual fruit is possible only when we aim high. There are all around us, as we talked about this morning, those who are dead in sin. What a tragedy. The answer to all the world's problems can be found on the cross. Jesus Christ is the answer to whatever question this world may ask. And we need to understand that most of the world have not set their sights high enough. The spiritual bar has not been raised even if there's one there at all. And a part of our responsibility and our part of our our privilege as God's people is to help people to have enlightened eyes and to be able to see that there's not just this world, there's a world to come. In fact, this is just boot camp to prepare us for the next life that will never end. And tonight, if you are not prepared for that life, that's what we're here for. We're not here just to worship God. We're here to be an encouragement to you to make that decision in your life, that you want to follow Jesus and you'll do whatever it takes to become a New Testament Christian and then to live and serve as a child of God. That's what we call you to tonight while we stand and while we sing.